So we're seeing the people that are going in and out all the time. And we, we sell direct online. So we're interacting with them via customer service inquiries all the time. We're throwing events. So we're like constantly interacting with our people. And so, yeah, we do know who they are and we're our people. Welcome to the Channel Mastery Podcast. If you're a specialty business and brand leader obsessed with understanding what the most effective channels are today to connect with, serve, and sell to your target consumers, then you've just found the perfect podcast and community. My name is Kristen Carpenter, and I'm your host and the founder of Verde Brand Communications, the presenting sponsor of Channel Mastery. Verde created the Channel Mastery Podcast to level the playing field for the specialty brands we serve. Every week on this show, we study how consumer preferences are changing and the evolving channels they like to use to engage with their favorite brands. Once again, welcome to Channel Mastery and subscribe today. Hello there, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast, co-produced by Verde Brand Communications and the Snow Sports Industries of America. Very exciting to be working with SIA on this podcast, and here we are just before the Thanksgiving holiday, well, I guess about a week or so before the Thanksgiving holiday 2019, and as all of us are aware, we are in it to win it right now between now and the end of the year for our specialty businesses, and today I have a dose of inspiration for you. I have an awesome guest, and I know a lot of you have been following this person, Her name is Annalisa Lovely, and she is the CEO and brand leader of Icelandic Skis. In fact, I think you'd have to be living under a rock to have not been following Annalisa. She is a very visible leader, has contributed a ton to the outdoor recreation industry and community through her work with the state of Colorado, and she's just done an amazing job as the leader of Icelandic. It's somehow a brand that has figured out how to be established, yet also always new and young. And I also think it's incredibly amazing and cool that Icelandic skis are designed and manufactured in Colorado. And I love that the brand is so well known for changing it up in terms of distribution events and brand activations with their channels. So that's what we're here to talk about today, how Icelandic leverages a continually refreshed channel strategy. She and her team are forced to be nimble. In fact, I think that's just where they've always lived and they're happy there, but they're so nimble and always are hacking what works with their channels to be where their brand fans and consumers want and expect them to be. And their channel strategy includes and focuses on wholesale partners, their own sell direct channel. It's also driven by an innovative mix of content marketing, social media, and good old-fashioned embedding with brand fans in person. I mean, how many CEOs do you know who work a promotional sale in retail in person over the long Labor Day holiday every single year? That's Annalisa, and that's her team. So in this episode, I think you're really going to learn a ton, and I think you're going to be inspired, and I'm super, super grateful that Annalisa was able to take the time to be with us here today. Thank you once again to Verity Brand Communications and... SIA for co-producing this special episode. Without further delay, let's drop in together today to hear what Annalisa has to say on the Channel Mastery Podcast. Let's do this. I have a fantastic guest to share with you today. You're about to hear from Annalisa Lovely, the CEO of Icelandic Skis. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kristen. So awesome to have you on the show. You're a fabulous guest for this series of content that SIA is sponsoring for obvious reasons. We're sitting down the day before Halloween. We are not in costume, but Annalisa does have her dog with her, which is great. I wish mine were with me too. But let's start by, I'm sure so many people in the audience know who you are already because you give so much back to the community and the industry and you're an iconic leader. I know you would never say that about yourself, but I'm going to say it for you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Yes. And I'd love for you to give kind of an introduction of yourself, and then we'll get into your role with Icelandic and talk about your channel strategies and all kinds of trends. And this is going to be fantastic. So let's start with you giving your background story and when you joined the company. Great. 
So, you know, Icelandic was founded by four friends, essentially. I mean, Ben, my business partner, had the idea to make skis, but four of us who have known each other since we were 10 all went to middle school and high school together. So technically, I've been around since the very beginning because we've all been friends since then. But um, officially, I joined the company in 2005 when we won a big award at ISPO, the big trade show over in Germany. So Ben had kind of submitted some products to this trade show ISPO and we ended up winning. So he called me to ask if I would help him essentially run the business side of things. So that's a very short story of how I got involved. But yeah, I studied business at the University of Vermont and I grew up in a, an international entrepreneurship family. So it was very natural for me to, to get excited by this opportunity. And I said yes. And in 2005, six is when we kind of officially started Icelandic. And that's when I went full-time, full-bore into this idea. That's fantastic. So it's not quite like getting a call from Oprah, but it is a life-changing call nonetheless. <laughs> pretty pretty life-changing. No free cars. I still haven't gotten my free car. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, life-changing call for sure. And it was interesting because Ben was my, and still is, one of my closest friends. And I remember my mom sat us all down, all four of us, and was like, do you guys know what you're getting yourselves into? You know, like this is, if you're going to do it, it's going to be a commitment and you're all friends right now. Do you want, do you want to remain friends? And yeah, so yeah, it was, it was definitely an intentional decision. It's interesting. We've worked with brands over the years like GoPro, and this was before they were purchased, but he had a bunch of friends from grammar school and high school working with him as well when he started that company. Yeah, that, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, and I see other brands like that too. Yeah, and a question that comes up a lot because that's something that's a belief somewhere out there is to never go into business with your friends or family, you know. So because of our situation, I get asked that asked about that a lot and mm-hmm. personally and I'm all for it. I mean, you know, just the trust that we've established and the relationship and the commitment that we have to each other is I don't think we would have had that if we weren't so tight from the very beginning. I love that. I think it's awesome. So you know what else I love about this is the year you started, if you were to like, if we were to transport ourselves back there right now, what a different landscape as a startup and how you got your product and your message and everything to your consumer. So we don't have to go into like the history of it, but I sure would love to talk about maybe some of the key points in your journey since you joined the company and have been leading the company where you saw like a precipitous change in a channel strategy in terms of how you are reaching, engaging, and converting your people. Jeez, that's a big question. It is. And that's the only question I'm going to ask you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay. All right. Settle down. Get comfortable. Uh, (laughs) um, I would say the first sort of channel strategy indicator that we got was winning ISPO, which international trade show, we got a lot of recognition there. And suddenly we were sort of catapulted into the European market and international market. So the first couple of years of our business, we were like 70% international and, you know, selling 30% in the States, which that wasn't a strategic or intentional decision. It was just kind of, you know, following the flow. Um, And then, uh, yeah, as you know, from working in this industry, breaking into specialty retailers, which was what our distribution strategy was, was really difficult. I mean, they are highly guarded by the old, old guard in the ski industry and buyers were very reluctant to explore new opportunities. They were resisting and, you know, small companies like ours that were independent and unproven and... Um, so it was a lot of hard work to to get into specialty retailers. And for the first eight years of our business, I mean, we were scratching at doors, just like begging people to bring us in there. And we hadn't been selling direct up until then either. So it was kind of the first like eight, eight-ish years of our business, it was, we were going very traditional distribution plan, which was how everybody did it. And that didn't really work for us. It was just, it, it worked, but it was, it was a lot of hard work. And then we were realizing that 
once we were in there, that was kind of only the first step, right? And then you have to sell through the retailers too. So we were realizing that our brand messaging, all the stuff that we were working so hard on to create from internal, internally, like in the business was getting essentially, it was like, I call it a brand guillotine. Like the retailer, it's, it's up to them whether our message is going to get, you know, translated to the end user. And so it's just like, man, it just didn't seem efficient to me at all. So that was one of the first, when I took over, which was five years ago now, one of the first things we instituted was direct sales, which that's nothing new. It was like not a brand new idea or anything, but in the ski industry, it was because. Hell yeah, it was. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of was, which I mean, everybody was just sort of held captive by the retailers protecting the retailers big time, which I respect, you know, I mean, they are, are the front lines to so many of our end users, but at the same time, I mean, the internet exists and it was, it was a really interesting time to observe because there was a few, a few retailers were just like, you're not allowed to sell online. And I mean, you can't ask somebody to do that, but yeah, I would say that that was a pretty big sort of distribution shift for us, selling direct and then... Well, wait, I have one question before you move. It might be two questions, but five years ago is when you flipped the switch, as they say. And I feel like a brand like yours with the storytelling that you have and the heritage, your story is very different. It really is. Like you came in as a disruptive competitor and those stores, I think, and I think a lot of those shop owners still they're still around and they're they're understanding like the evolution that's happening and I think now they see it as a bonus that you've built an audience online because everybody's kind of like you're helping to raise the level of awareness for all the channels because you did that when you did but let's look at this like so you guys had to claw your way into wholesale then you had to basically do I think kind of almost like a, a <laughs> a disruptive move even just to set up your cell direct during a time when they weren't entirely thrilled with that either. So did you lose wholesale partners in that process, but know that it was just the right thing to do, which it absolutely was. I mean, no question. Yeah, no question. It was the right thing to do. And no, we didn't lose any wholesale partners. That's awesome. We were all, you know, especially our sales reps and our sales manager were, they were kind of the most hesitant, but we, you know, before we flipped the switch, we armed ourselves with our arguments and reasons for doing it. And everybody was armed with those. And we had, you know, a a couple kickbacks from a few retailers, but like you just said, and this is one of my lines that I say all the time is a rising tide floats all ships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more we're, we're essentially creating customers all the time from within from within Icelandic and all those customers are going to go to these retailers. And we have, it honestly kind of, because we were so sensitive to and just being mindful about our retailers, I think it, it, it probably enhanced our relationship with all of our wholesalers just because we wanted to be extra mindful and take care of them. So yeah, no, no negative consequences at all, only positive. Right. And so at the time, and I'm just saying this as a, a way to create almost like a dichotomy for our audience here, we were working with K2, and that was one of our founding brands. A brand like that that I think had, it's almost like specialized in Trek was and is in bike right now. They almost like dictate, here's your assortment. This is what you sold through on, like they become a, a, such a close business partner that the retailer almost can't see beyond them in some of our markets. And so you are actually in a perfect position because you had great product that was award-winning. So as we know, the product is a you know king-queen. <laughs> it is really important in what we do. Um, and you were able to you know have the visibility, the relationship, the trust established in wholesale, went to direct, I think they would have expected you guys to do that, right? And so you thankfully were able to do that and build the relationship from both sides in terms of wholesale and consumer. And I think that's fantastic. But let's also look at the timeline. So two years after that, you launched a flagship store, right? So let's talk about that because you know what I love about this already? You almost have a direct first story that's like in costume as a wholesale legacy brand. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) You're masquerading around as like... (laughs) 
<laughs> a legacy wholesale brand. But honestly, it seems like you are really a direct first brand in so many ways. Because if I look at the timeline of some of the other markets and some of the other interviews I've done around a direct first brand, that's right around the mark that they want to get either in select retail so that there's a taction, the touch and feel. I love that word. I don't even know if it's a real word. It's a nice word. Yes. <laughs> I took that from Omni, the Omni Talk blog, Chris Walton. He's always coming up with that. But so that's like right around the time that you as a, you know, you're growing your your fan base, your followers, your consumers online, they're going to want to go and touch and feel the product. They have your wholesalers, but you needed to tell, like you needed a theater. You needed a stage, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. And being in wholesalers, I, I know I keep interchanging those words, wholesalers and retailers, but to I the do too. they're retailers to us, yeah. they're wholesalers. But uh-huh. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that adds a lot of legitimacy to our brand. And by the time we went direct, we were in all the best retailers. So we were mm-hmm. in REI, Evo, Vail Resorts, you know, Bankgate, Powder 7, all of all of the best retailers. So we were in there and we were established and we had great sell through and all those. And, and it was interesting. They were, we went to all these people before and as we were planning on flipping the switch and they were all so support, they were encouraging us to go direct. So that's um, great. Yeah, totally. And then interesting with our retail store in Golden. So we opened it up in downtown Golden, literally across the street from Bent Gate, which is one of our oldest and best brick and mortar retailers. Well, they sell online too, but and obviously we were in conversation with them the whole time as, as we were planning this brick and mortar store. And since we opened our, our flagship store across the street from them, their sales with us have like doubled every year. So again, rising tide floats all ships. Isn't that interesting? It's cool. Yeah. And we didn't expect that, but we have a really cool symbiotic relationship with them now too, where we send everybody who, they're essentially our demo center, which is really helpful for us because mm-hmm. we don't have the equipment needed for that. And and then we do, you know, buy a pair of skis at our flagship store and get a free mount at Bent Gate or, you know, it's just a lot of opportunities to work together. It's a different definition of partnership between brand and retailer. <laughs> now I'm thinking about it, retail, wholesale. Let's just say retail from now on. Okay, retail. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So that kind of switches gears because obviously um, Ventgate has a house of brands of, across a number of seasons. How has the? I know this is a this is a book, not a not one question in a podcast. But can you give us some of your insights or your takes on how the competitive set has changed? Let's just talk about the last five years. The competitive set. Like if you're looking, yeah, like let's say we look at my past client K2 and the heritage, like, you know, like the dominance a brand like that has had over the retailer. Obviously then you're, you know, that's what the consumer is seeing. That's what they're used to seeing. But then all of a sudden the airwaves open up and brick and mortar is opening. Like, and we're going to talk about some of your other channels that you've activated in a really cool way. But like there have been some other upstart direct first ski brands. And I think that the entire competitive landscape has changed. And a large part of like the maybe more established people in our community of snow sports and outdoor might clump those together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't right. know like Great what they would point. call that bucket, but you know what I mean? So I feel like you're an interesting company for so many reasons, but you, you can kind of bob and weave between the two. So I feel like you could bring a really interesting perspective to that. Yeah, great. Well, I think one thing that we all know being consumer goods industry is that consumers are so much more educated now than they ever have been before. And especially younger consumers are much becoming much more conscious of the brands and products that they're buying. And so for us, and yeah, you're right. I mean, especially when we started, there were probably like walking around, you know, the SIA trade show or the ISPO trade show. I mean, there was 50, 60 small independent ski brands, startup brands. Mm -hmm. And you kind of couldn't tell one apart from the next if, unless you were looking really closely. So, I mean, one thing that we've always done in our our mantra, which I like, I love that we adopted this and just took it as our brand position is return to nature. And that 
that can mean like get outside, whatever, like very, very literal, but on a deeper level, it's like return to who you are at the core. And so for us in terms of the competitive landscape and establishing our brand position, return to nature is really important for us to continue to remember to work from within and to not necessarily sure, be aware of what's going on outside and what our competitors are doing and everything like that, but to just listen to what's going on at our core and in our nucleus and to work from there, because that's what's going to ultimately separate us from the competition and essentially fortify us from or against invaders. God, I'm talking war. But um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's, it's brand positioning. So yeah, I I think that consumers have a choice nowadays, so much more choices nowadays and so much more access to information on companies and brands and practices and values and everything like that. And so, yeah, I mean, we we just continue, I guess I already said it, but I'll say it again, but, um, you know, that is really our approach to the competitive landscape is to be aware of what's going on. Personally, you know, part of my role is to observe both within our company, um, but also what I really love doing is observing the ecosystem as a whole, the industry, the world, the patterns, everything like that, and like bringing that into into our company decisions too. And that's a great way to stay nimble because that's always changing. It's always changing. Yeah. Right. And I see you guys as an independent, nimble company. Would you say, you know, this far into your lifespan, are you still that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. good. And if you guys were able to see her face just lit up. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously. <laughs> well, well, and because you know, and maybe we'll talk about this, but you know, I do do work with the outdoor rec industry yeah. on a state level, and so, and in just the past couple of years, I've been getting more and more into we can call it politics, you know, and policy and governmental <laughs> procedures and. I just like see the inefficiencies of that and how hard it is to get things done. And so, yeah, I take a lot of pride in our ability to kind of like make quick decisions and make relevant decisions. And, you know, a big personal practice for me is, is mindfulness and and presence. And so I try to take all of, you know, those practices that I do personally into the business. And it's really important to check in on a very regular basis. Like, is this still aligned? Does this make sense still? Because there's no, a saying that we say at the office quite a bit that's, you know, kind of embedded in our thinking is to fail fast. If, <laughs> if it doesn't work, let go of them and move on. And yeah. I've heard that as fail forward. I like fail fast. Because ultimately, even if you face plant, you're you're further ahead where you hit. Like that's further ahead than where you were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, like it, you gotta. It's the whole like baseball analogy or whatever. I mean, you gotta swing right. all the time in order to make home runs. And the faster you swing, and the faster you kind of like see whether it's a hit or not, the the better off you'll be. And how are you plugging your team into that? So I know that it sounds like you guys have a very, I'm going out on a limb here, but a a different structure, like maybe more of a flat organization where you have scouts that are out there looking at your channels and like really weighing what's working, what isn't with your consumer. Am I right? Yeah. Yep. Big time. So talk about maybe one of your channels and how that works, if you're comfortable doing that probably one of your more nimble channels, like maybe something with YouTube or content or social media, or that seems to be like a, a, could be an interesting example because it could be something you do quickly and see if it's working or not quickly and how you would fix it. See, yeah, that's like one area that I wish we were a little bit more like nimble on. And the whole idea of content, you know, brands producing content, it's like what so many brands are doing. And that's, that's one thing we're questioning right now, honestly, is like, wait, do we need to be producing brand, uh, contents, content just because all these other brands are? And that's, yeah, I mean, so maybe that is a good example because right now we're actually contemplating a pretty big budget item and as to like whether or not we're going to go produce this, this essentially a, a ski edit that's going to be a lot of time and energy and money 
And we've just found in the past couple of years that we've done these things. It's like we produce nice content, but we haven't like dialed in the distribution. And so ultimately it's like just not worth it. It's kind of not a waste of time and energy, but so, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that we're kind of just questioning right now is, are we a content company just because like GoPro produces great content and DPS produces great content and do we need to compete there too? Or is there a a better place for us to be spending our time and energy? And I don't have that answer yet, but I guess that could be relevant. And that is an example of, of like, Oh, something we're doing and just checking in with it to make sure it like aligns and makes sense. And it's the best use of our resources. So I see that in your brand as another way to bring an experience to life. And that talks, that will tie us back to your other channels because I feel like what I've seen is you are investing in channels where you're able to actually have that, provide the experience and almost you're either co-creating it or you're there while it happens. Cause obviously you own your own store. You have wholesale partners that I think you're very selective with and you have I want you to talk about it, not me, but let's talk about some of the other channels that you have in that regard, because I feel like, you know, you have a um, very forward-looking approach on this, and some of the things that you've chosen to launch really reflect that, and they aren't small. (laughs) You've gone pretty big. So let's talk about some of those some of those initiatives that you guys have invested in and I think really kind of um, built your brand around. Yeah. I mean, one I would think is like winter on the rocks or, you know, like there's big stuff. So let's talk about that and kind of how it, where did you, that's, I, I imagine you guys sat around and thought about that one for a while too, but. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we kind of did, but it also came very naturally. Like when SIA moved from Vegas to Denver, everyone's question was like, where are we going to party? What's the entertainment going to be, you know? <laughs> and so I was on the board of directors for SIA when that move happened. And so I was privy to all this information well before, you know, anybody else was. So we were basically just like, we need to throw a party <laughs> to, you know, we need to provide some entertainment for the people so that every, and Denver's our hometown. And we were like, we got to show people that Denver's cool. And mm-hmm. so it started just by us throwing concerts at the Ogden. So we did the Ogden Theater just in downtown Denver, 1,500 people for two years. And after the second year, we're like, okay, we're going big. We're like, let's approach the city who owns Red Rocks and see if they'd be willing to open up, you know, the venue for a day, one day in the middle of winter. And um, they were into it. They loved the idea. And we have sold out Winter on the Rocks for the past eight years, 10,000 people. That's amazing. I know. It's really amazing. It's a big feat. And, you know, like still this year, I mean, we'll be, if if needed, I mean, our whole crew will go out and shovel the steps (laughs) at Red Rocks several days before and um, because of snow or whatever. And yeah, that's been a really really rich idea on so many levels. I mean, part of our company ethos is, I guess ethos is the wrong word, but we're so connected with the arts in general, whether it's music, obviously our top sheets are all original, super creative artwork. We just associate art and skiing with like this idea of authentic expression. So music and skiing go hand in hand together too. And so, yeah, on a surface level, that makes sense for Winter on the Rocks. Just bring the skiing community outside and enjoy some nice music. But it's also provided us a cool opportunity to engage partners on a different level. So we bring in sponsors and partners to Winter on the Rocks, like Jeep, Verizon, Oscar Blues, Never Summer, you know, a whole host of cool other brands that are aligned with us. And it provides them an opportunity to activate the ski and outdoor industry. And um, we've had the same partners for several years. I mean, they sign up every year to, to get on board with Winter on the Rocks again. It's always a, seems like it's always, it always returns a pretty good investment to them. And, and yeah, that has kind of expanded our partnership network to these like national brands that we might not have worked with otherwise. And yeah, I mean, partnerships are a big, another big sort of strategic play that we've been exploring like since the beginning and winter on the rocks is a cool example of that 
I love it because you're not just talking about a collab, a product collab. You're talking about engaging and growing like audiences and giving them interest and depth to their passions. And I just love it. Yeah, exactly. And Winter on the Rocks is really, when I think about the active outdoor lifestyle that people are moving to Colorado to live, Winter on the Rocks essentially like encapsulates that whole thing in one night. You know, it's like music, it's sport, it's outdoors, it's experience, it's community, you know, so it's kind of like everything all in one, one little package. So, you know, what I love most about this is the fact that you invite consumers to an event that historically has been closed to consumers, which in our era is kind of ridiculous. Oh man. (laughs) I know. Well, again, and this, like, you know, I was on the board of SIA for six years and my, I I had a couple points that I was like so adamant about. And one of them was that in order for this trade show to remain relevant or the whole, and we could talk about trade shows forever, but I was like, we need to involve the people who are buying our product, you know, the end user. And that obviously we couldn't get there on the trade show level, but that was another big reason that, yeah, Winter on the Rocks. I'm like, oh, hell yeah. Like we can invite the whole trade show, which is awesome. And that is, it's a gift to all of our retailers and partners. You know, we bring them to Winter on the Rocks. We bust them up there, give them booze. You know, it's a whole event. But then <laughs> we get to invite the entire community of, of Colorado and elsewhere. And um, yeah, so... I'm proud of that. <laughs> yeah, and you should be because if we were to look at it as a as a lab experiment, you literally have proven through that event that we are not able to cordon off people in trade halls. So there's a bike historically bike show, winter sports show, outdoor show. Thankfully, those shows are now together, the outdoor and, and winter sport. But and I think they're trying to do bike, but that's been a little wonky from what I've heard. But you know, I think the old school mindset is, oh no, we have to actually buy for this consumer in this channel of retail. And you have literally blown that out of the water by showing all of these people, companies, probably nonprofits, like the whole nine yards that our consumer profile loves all of it. It's not just winter sports. So... (laughs) No, you can't silo. Nothing exists in a vacuum or a silo, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. But you've shown them, like in case they're looking for a proof of concept, Winter on the Rocks is right there for you. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I like it. I haven't thought about it like that, but yeah. So let's talk a little bit, because that's almost, you know, a bit of an owned media platform. Not that you try and own it, but you created it. So it's a platform that you have created and it feels like it's an open source one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Definitely. Some of the other ones, like the One Degree TV, I'm also hoping you could talk a little bit about that too, because that seems super cool. Yeah, One Degree TV, we have a couple cool, and again, back to this content idea, it's like, we are still sort of, I mean, we we have so many great ideas for content, and so it's just a natural place to put our energies, you know, because there's ideas and we have we have the people to make it happen and things like that. But the idea behind One Degree TV um, was to essentially give people a deeper look into kind of the ongoings of Icelandic, both on the athlete side and on kind of the business side, and also to be a platform for um, us to showcase, you know, issues that we care about and things like that. We haven't you know, manifested all of that yet, but that's the idea behind One Degree TV. Um, Because like we were saying earlier, consumers just want to know what's going on behind the brands that they're supporting. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the kind of concepts that I'm like really excited about for One Degree TV is called um, One Degree Deeper. And we have a couple, or maybe we just have one episode so far, but it's with Travis Parr. And so the idea behind One Degree Deeper is just like, who are the people behind Icelandic and where do these ideas come from? And, you know, what motivates us? What drives us? Where are we going with it? And I'm pretty psyched on that because that shit's fascinating to me, you know, just like, especially Travis Parr, our artist, people look at our graphics and are like, where the hell did those come from? Like they're (laughs) literally people, a very common, you know, 
comment on them is like, there must be a lot of drugs involved in those. And you're like, oh, not really. He's just, he's got some, he's got some shit going on in his head, you know, in this one degree deeper series, which is like, I mean, or episode, it's like five minutes long or something, you know, it kind of gives you some insight into what goes on in Travis Parr's mind. And it gives, it just, you know, eliminates the intensity and the intention behind everything that we do. And yeah. So Wonder TV love to is just kind of like, let's, let's shine some light on the inner workings of what it is to like run a brand and also talk about issues that we care about and things that we care about. Yeah. You're using your brand for reach, I think, with the issues you care about. But I really think you're hitting a sweet spot today with longer form content for consumers. They're getting so tired of like captions that were chosen from an SEO standpoint in publications. I just said that out loud, but it's true. And I, well, as a, as a person who owns a brand communications company, like that's a very real part of our day to day in terms of breaking through to the end consumers with our brands. And I feel like, um, you know, your, your, your owned media gives people a chance to go deeper and you, you control the narrative on that. I'm curious to know, is this one of the ways that you're gauging sentiment and, and collecting feedback or conversation, like two-way conversation with your brand fans? It is. I mean, it's not, it's kind of hard to measure that. I mean, other than, you know, direct feedback that we get from people, you know, via whatever emails, comments, whatever, but we tend to, um, I don't really have an answer to that. Like how we get sort of feedback from our audience. We just seem to know, we, we have like a psychographic profile that we um, revisit on a pre- pretty regular basis of like our customer profile. You know, mm-hmm. this is who we're talking to. And um, in general, you know, the ideas for content come from all over the place. They come from athletes, ambassadors, sales reps, in-house employees, international distributors. They're kind of coming from all over the place. And like, with, with a lot of things, I mean, there's ideas and floating around all the time. And the ones that kind of like stick, we tend to not question if there's resonance with, you know, several people and like it aligns. That's, you know, we, we tend to flow pretty organically. So um, I don't think I answered your question, but. In some ways you answered an assumption I had in a, in a positive way, which is you're so close to your end consumer that you almost don't have to use surveys and things like that, more traditional methods. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's pretty true. And we're lucky because we are interacting with our end consumer on a very regular basis. I mean, our HQ is connected to our retail store, so we're seeing the people that are going in and out all the time. And we we sell direct online, so we're interacting with them via customer service inquiries all the time. We're throwing events, you know, like one event a month basically, you know, whether it's at our shop or, so we're like constantly interacting with our people. And so, yeah, we do know who they are and we're our people. Right. And you're not relying on your wholesale network to do it for you or your reps. I mean, sure, they can contribute the feedback, but I think that's, that's an area where there might've been some set and forget in the past. Yeah. Big time. And you were like, you were indoctrinated into the, I hate the brand guillotine from day one. So Oh, I was. I mean, for me, like Ben and I, Ben's my business partner, you know, and we run the company together. We battled with that for a while. You know, I was always like, we need to sell direct. What are we doing? Yeah. Um, But another interesting thing we do every year, which I kind of hate, but I do it, is we work the Labor Day sales, which, you know, like ski wrecks and those like dreaded Labor Day sales. I mean, I love you, all, all of you, you know, I love you, Vale, and everything, but it's so we're working front line we're selling skis in the retail shop and all of us do it all weekend long and it's such it gives you such insight into consumer behavior and what's going on on the floor and so yeah that's awesome and it's right before your planning season probably yep exactly that's really cool we i haven't thought about that too much but we do remain pretty connected to our customer that's awesome. So I have to ask, obviously, um, I don't think there are, it's, it's commonplace yet, and hopefully that will change, to have female CEOs of, 
American-made hard goods companies who throw giant parties and things like that. So, but seriously, like you, you are, a, you have been a path burner. And I just wanted to kind of give you a chance to talk about if you see evolution on that front, are you seeing things kind of become more natural around that? Um, or are you still an anomaly? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a big question. And I think about I it a lot. What I am seeing, which is so encouraging and makes me really happy, is I am seeing more women coming into leadership positions in general, whether that's in the media um, or, you know, just like other companies within the industry. And we have, um, I'm a part of this pretty cool group. We call it Lady Shred, and it's like 20 women you know, from age 20 to age, you know, 45. And that's, that's open to expansion, but, and it's every, everyone from freelance writers to me, to, you know, editor of powder, whatever. My point is what I'm, what I am seeing via like through lady shred and other, I'm seeing a lot more like communities of women coming together to do work and whether it's like in the same business, it's, it's just like a cool pattern that I'm noticing of just like, yeah, women coming together to make ski films or to do projects or to help each other with their business or whatever. And I think that's really cool because one thing that I think women are innately just kind of more attuned to is the power of community and come out the power of kind of, you know, we're better together. Not afraid to ask for help too. Oh, it's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And even when I was, you know, like 10 years ago or when we started Icelandic, like I was, I was kind of like the poster child of a like fearful when I had a big ego. I didn't want to work with other people. It's just like, yeah. So thanks for saying I'm a path burner, but man, it's been a burning path to get to where I am now. And I've, um, yeah, I mean, I hope that more, there's so much involved in that question. But, I know. You know, and it's not just about being a woman in a leadership position. It's about really embodying your feminine qualities of leadership because you can be a woman like I was for a long time. I was a woman or no, I was like a man in a woman's body essentially because I was conditioned to act like I saw other CEOs acting and, and like, you know, I wasn't actually leading from an authentic place, whereas now I am because I've done a lot of work on myself to return to like my like, yeah, authentic leadership style. So it's less a question of like more women in leadership and more a question of the acceptance and celebration of the feminine qualities in leadership. That That's what I think about a lot. And with us, you know, because I, I'm, I feel so lucky that I have been as kind of like a co- producer of this, this journey that we call Icelandic because we're so yin and yang, like we complement each other so well and having him and all of his like very masculine, active qualities, it balances out my like yin, more like communal sort of more being qualities. And I love it. By the way, I totally can relate with what you just said around feeling like you need to change to fit in with a paradigm leader. Yeah. And then realizing like, actually what I bring to this is a lot, like it's going to serve everybody so much better, you know? And I feel like our companies are here to create expansion and incredible opportunities for people during their favorite parts of their lives, like their off time, right? And I feel like we can bring so much more to that in terms of the experience we're offering, if it is a yin and a yang and we're proud of it and we don't have to masquerade <laughs> as something else. Like, and that is, it wasn't an easy, it's, it's not an easy decision to step in that direction because you're not expected to, but that's what I feel like I see as more natural is we can do it easier now than 10 years ago, seven years ago, even four years ago. Yep. Agreed. Yep. And so. hopefully it'll just continue become more and more accepted and celebrated. The more that they have to look up at people like you, they, they have a mentor now to see someone actually being that way. We didn't have that as much as, as, as our peers and, and people coming into, I think. Sorry to interrupt you. 
no, you're good. But I just did a, a keynote talk to to Vail last week and we talked all about bravery and courage and and the 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 issue of diversity and inclusion, which is such a hot topic right now, came up and it kind of came to me as I was speaking that day, but I've thought about it a lot and like diversity and inclusion of course can be looked at, you know, in colors and age and everything like that. But there's so much diversity to be celebrated in even like a seemingly homogenous population of whatever white middle-class people. (laughs) I mean, just in men and women, you know, and I know diversity, the the idea of like men and women is, is a huge topic, but the more we can kind of just realize and celebrate all of our own experiences and differences and what we bring into the table. But yeah, I guess specifically in this conversation, the the feminine qualities, the the better off we'll be. I, I think we're always like reaching too far out for diversity and inclusion to 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 appear like we're, you know, focusing on that. But really it's like there's subtle details that if we can recognize and support. I agree. So your point, it sounds like, is the change is already happening if we're if we open up our eyes and are open yeah. to it. Yeah. Yep. Totally. I agree. And I guess um, the other thing, since you just mentioned Veil, and one thing I wanted to ask before we um, called it a day here together, is when I was interviewing Nick Sargent last March for a podcast, and he said, who knew five years ago that resorts would be our biggest retail channel, right? And, you you know, that's another thing that's happened in that magic five-year window we've been talking about today. Obviously, you have a really close relationship with Veil, but, like, in your opinion, What's behind that evolution? I mean, I I personally think it's it's the experiential backdrop or the hub that it provides in terms of like I'm there, I can plug into so many things. But what's your take? Yeah, I think what you said is is spot on. I think um, the trend towards less purchasing and more sort of like rentals is a big player in that. People don't want to travel with their skis as much if they can like go to the resort and either purchase their product there or just rent it there. And yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of makes sense to to showcase products at the place of use. I'm happy that they're partnering with brands like yours and not doing kind of like a homogenous play. You know what I mean? Or their own branded product. I mean, not, not that that would be anything like the broader consumer would even bat an eye at, but it seems like they are truly trying to create, I hate this word because it's so overused, but a true snow sports curated experience. They really are. Like, and I have to hand them that. Plus, they're doing a lot with accessibility with their epic passes and different things like they're coming out with the community of resorts, you know. I just feel like it's it's a whole new era, and every year they're able to build on what worked and do less of what didn't, and that seems to be among some of the businesses and organizations we look at on this show, a tough thing to do. And they're doing it as a much bigger organization. Yeah, big time. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate, and you know, it being in our position, brand, the size that we are and competing in this landscape that's, you know, owned by some really large old brands. I really appreciate the fact that companies like Vail or REI or whatever are taking yeah, brands like Icelandic into consideration and realizing that we're American made and that our price points are going to be a little different and everything like that, but still investing in that because, and good for them. And if I was a consultant for them, I would say that this was a smart move because you got to diversify your offerings and your consumers are, you know, changing so much. But yeah, I really appreciate the fact that they're kind of investing in companies like Icelandic and brands like Icelandic because it's, again, it's an ecosystem and the small grasses matter as much as the big trees do. It's all, it all plays into it. So I love that. And I guess the last thing I'd like to say, just as a high compliment to you guys and what you're doing, is I feel like you're like, so we, we're in an era right now that I think is so fabulous for specialty because people are wanting to self-identify with their experiences and passions that they love to do. And then they want to even go more niche than that and identify with the brand that really represents who they want to believe they are in that entire world. And like you guys have nailed that. You really have. And I see that through like the artwork, the music, the experience, the community. It's very, I think, um, 
for the right person, it's easy to see like, this is my brand. You know what I mean? Yeah, cool. Yep. So I really applaud what you've done there. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. And you nailed it and saying for the right person, you know, and that's something that we've had to just, you have to let go of trying to be everything for everyone. And again, coming full circle back to like the return to nature and like just operating from our, from our depths of what we know to be true, that, that as long as we keep doing that, we're, we'll, we'll send the message to the right people. And that's kind of our philosophy. No matter what the channel. Yeah, exactly. No matter what the channel and that, gosh, I mean, I hope we still have winter in 20 years, but (laughs) we're remaining open to all channels of where this brand can go. And, um, I really look forward to like, yeah, to just kind of continuing to support this entity that is Icelandic in the path that it's ready to travel. That's awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Is there anything that I might have missed that the audience might have not picked up? No, it's fun. I I usually tend to talk a lot more about the philosophical meanings behind the... This was like a really nice, tangible discussion about like business and strategy and industry. And yeah, this was fun. Thanks. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I look forward to having you back and really like best of luck. We'll be rooting for you guys from the sidelines. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you're finding value in the Channel Mastery Podcast, and I certainly hope you are, I'd love to ask that you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as rate and review the show on iTunes. Doing so helps more people discover the content, more specialty business and brand leaders can be helped by the incredible resources we're offering every week on the show. I also would like to invite you to join our community at channelmastery.com or verdepr.com. Sign up with your email and you'll receive special resources and content created just for friends of the podcast. You'll also receive advanced notice of new Channel Mastery trainings and offerings like our brand new digital resource and membership that's opening up in Q3 2019. Thanks for listening and see you next week.